I think what I would invite people to think about is that actually what we've got to go through as society over the next decade or two is a transformation in relation to these issues. It can't just be a series of incremental actions reacting to problems as they occur. It's actually we've got to anticipate and have a strategy for how we're going to shift to a kind of new reality where we are learning to live in balance with the environment. And so I'd like to sort of invite the veterinary profession to think through what does a veterinary surgery look like, say, in 2040? What could it look like? How could it be absolutely zero carbon? How could it be using as few chemicals as possible? And what would be the good alternatives to those that actually do the job just as well, if not better, without causing environmental problems? Hi, everyone, and welcome to the VBJ First Opinions podcast, where today I'm delighted to be joined by Craig Bennett, who is the Chief Executive Officer at the Wildlife Trust. Craig is with me today because he is going to be the keynote speaker at SPIV's VMG Congress, which is on the 13th to 14th of May. So you're looking forward to that, Craig? I am very much so. Um, It's disappointing in one sense, of course, that it's a virtual Congress. I would have enjoyed being able to meet people face to face. But obviously, then it has its benefits as well. So, uh, you know, you just take with what, what comes. And I'm delighted to be speaking at the conference. Um, We're delighted to have you. First of all, could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and your career, Craig? Yeah, well, I've been an environmental campaigner for the whole of my career, really. Um, It's a bit weird. I remember when I was growing up in the 1980s, I remember telling my careers teacher at school that that's what I wanted to do. And probably I think uh, he thought I was a bit weird (laughs) in thinking that back then. But I was really sort of firmly uh, focused that that's what I wanted to do. And um, I went through university, did a geography degree and a master's in nature conservation, and then uh, started off at the Environmental Investigation Agency doing uh, sort of work work on international wildlife crime. Uh, Then I was at Friends of the Earth for many years and uh, ended up as chief executive for five years, uh, just over five years at Friends of the Earth. I had a bit of time in between working at the University of Cambridge for the Institute for Sustainability Leadership. And actually, I've sort of had a parallel career uh, right across my career in uh, teaching on executive education around leadership and sustainability issues. Um, and then last year, uh, just over a year ago, I started as chief executive of the Wildlife Trusts. Uh, so that sort of gives you a, a bit of a sketch of it. Yeah, I'm really interested in something you just said then, actually, Craig. I mean, it's something you wanted to do from when you were a kid. What was it back in the 80s that you were seeing that you were exposed to? What was the trigger for you that made you decide on this as a career? I've, I've been asked that many times and I can't give <laughs> sorry a definitive... Sorry for being so cliche. No, no, I just can't... Div- I, I'm sorry to say I can't really give a definitive answer. I mean, um, in the late 1980s, there was this thing that's being recognized as a certain green wave uh there was a period of time a, a, a few years where suddenly environmental issues kind of reached a prominence had not reached before and uh, i suppose that was a sort of formative period of time for me and i got involved in both my local friends of the earth group and my uh, local wildlife trust as well uh so uh, and that was a formative time but why they these issues hooked me and not perhaps others in my class at the time i i don't know but I've always kind of been driven by the think, the thought that actually learning to live fairly within environmental limits is the next step of human progress. You know, very often 
campaigning for the environment is seen as almost a barrier of, uh, of progress. I think it's exactly the opposite. I think surely it is the next step of human progress. And if, if it's not that, what is it? Because scientists are pretty clear that we might not have another step of human progress unless we learn to live fairly with environmental limits. So I'm just really driven by that goal and uh, particularly the urgency that we've got to do that this century. It has to be in the 21st century we as humanity learn to live on this planet as if we mean to stay. Uh, and if we don't do it, then we're stuffed. So, you know, that's what really drives me and has uh, been the focus for me for my career. And it's interesting you mentioned progress because I think that is a, a barrier for a lot of people. It seems that for the last two, three centuries, humanity has taken ever increasing amounts of resources to sustain increasingly, in some cases, flamboyant lifestyles. It's key, I guess, for people like you, for everyone to understand that it's not that. But I guess it's very difficult to get that message across that by being more environmental, being more sustainable, living more lightly on the planet isn't necessarily going to see humanity go back to the dark ages where we can't do all the things we do at the moment, where we have global travel, we have the internet, we have all this connectivity, but it all comes at a cost. It's all burning electricity, isn't it? Yeah. And, you know, the, the point for me very simply is that there's two stories for the civilization we're currently in. Uh, and uh, neither have been finished yet. We've, it's for us to decide which story gets told now. Either it's a story of the classic story of all civilizations to date, which is they grow, they expand, they do very clever things, they build monuments, uh, uh, and they expand their reaches and so on. And then for whatever reason, they collapse in on themselves. Um, and that's true of Easter Island population, the Mayan civilization, Aztecs, and so on. Uh, or we do something really clever and uh, we defy, you know, history and actually defy actually what the science is currently saying, which is we're heading the exactly the same direction of those civilizations. The problem is, is that when history repeats itself, the price goes up and it will mm -hmm. be an even bigger collapse this time around. But surely this time around, you would hope that our current civilization is clever enough and forward thinking enough and has its finger on the pulse of science and technology and behavioral change and democracy and bringing about social change and so on, that we should be able to avoid that. And we should be able to be smart and clever about how actually we make sure that our civilization lasts. Um, and that to me, as I said, it's, surely that is the next step of human progress. We've got to learn to live fairly on this planet as if we mean to stay. And um, uh, that for me, you know, that is the big choice we've got ahead of us in the decades ahead. And every single sector of every economy, every community, every country has to think, what's the role you want to play in that story? And, um, you know, that's that's really the big theme I'm going to be saying at the conference this year. It's like for this uh, amazing sector of the veterinary sector, um, what is the role you can play in that story? What is the what is the role for the veterinary sector in working out um, actually how can how can uh, you help society learn to live fairly within environmental limits and learn to live sustainably? And I can't give you the answer to that. Actually, it has to come from within the veterinary sector. It can give a few pointers, but um, it has to come from within the veterinary sector. And I just hope and would invite. Uh, and I'm sure it's happening already in some places, but I would hope that becomes a really big discussion and driver of action in the veterinary sector in the years ahead. Certainly, I'd agree with you there. And, and the issue of sustainability is one that is um, getting a lot more momentum over recent years. And I know VMG Spivs recently held a sustainability event and there's a lot of action now happening. We've got groups like Vet Sustain, which are really uh, gathering momentum as well. But 
for many years, the veterinary sector has been considered as one which has considerable environmental impacts, a lot of use of disposable plastics, et cetera, et cetera, and the unavoidable use of certain chemicals to keep these clinical environments clean. But what do you think of the efforts so far being taken to mitigate some of these impacts, Craig? Well, I think it's always welcome to see the kind of action that's taking place. Um, and it's welcome to sort of see the reaction to what's what's happening there to try and reduce some of these kind of impacts. I think what I would just invite people to think about is that actually what we've got to go through as society over the next decade or two is a transformation in relation to kind of these issues. It can't just be a series of sort of incremental actions reacting to problems as they occur. It's actually we've got to anticipate and have a strategy for how we're going to uh, shift to a kind of new reality where we are uh, learning to live uh, in balance with the environment. So uh, part of the task as that is almost for every sector to to kind of do future casting, think what is that going to look like? How can we get there? And so I'd like to sort of invite the veterinary profession to think through what, is a, what does a veterinary surgery look like, say, in 2040? What could it look like? How could it be absolutely zero carbon? How could it be using as few chemicals uh, or pesticides or whatever as possible that cause problems? And what would be the the good alternatives to those that actually do the job just as well, if not better, without causing some of the environmental problems. And actually to produce a vision from that, you don't do it by starting from here. You don't think how we're going to get there. You think that's where we're going to get to. And then we've got to backcast from there and think about the big transformations that get us there rather than just incremental progress. And, and that's where also this sector can offer real leadership. I mean, take for an example, an issue that I've been focused on uh, quite a lot in my, in my career over the last five years has been, been the use of neonicotinoid pesticides. Mm-hmm. and particularly focused on the use in agriculture and the harm they've caused to bees and the evidence that they've been one of the, the big causes of declines in bee populations. And that's been a real focus around their use in agriculture. But of course, they're also used in veterinary medicine, in particular applications to dogs and cats and so on. And this, there is evidence that that can cause real problems then when particularly dogs go running off, as mine does, and through waterways and rivers Indeed. and so on. And then it ends up in the aquatic environment. You know, I would love the veterinary profession to, to try and take a leadership position on something like that. How can they challenge the manufacturers of those to say, you know, actually, this should not be a viable alternative. We should not be uh, considering it, it right to produce a flea treatment there made of such a toxic chemical that it causes such a problem in the environment. And, you know, what's the kind of pull through? What's almost the forward procurement compact that this profession can make with suppliers to say, we need to get rid of these over the next year or so. And, uh, you know, we'll work with you to kind of come up with alternatives that don't cause the problem. That's what I think would be really exciting. And I'm, I know there's many people in the veterinary sector that would be really keen to take that kind of leadership position. So not necessarily just accepting the status quo. You have certain products to treat certain things. It's not activism, but pressure on the ground in surgeries, in practices to say, no, we want alternatives. This isn't good enough anymore. Exactly. And particularly if the, if the veterinary profession can work together kind of as a cohort to do that, if, and, and not least, of course, through organisations like uh, the Veterinary Management Group and uh, SPIVS as well. That will be incredibly important to sort of say together as a cohort, as a profession, 
this is what we don't like at the moment. Uh, this is our vision of how it could be. And now let's work with stakeholders to, to get there. And I think, you know, that's what we need to see in every sector at the moment to deal with these challenges. And I, I would be really confident that the veterinary sector can do that as well. And I think, you know, uh, the, your customers would be just delighted if that's the kind of role uh, the veterinary sector were to play. Because, you know, I can't really imagine there's that many pet owners that actually would want to knowingly be part of the problems of, say, getting neonics into uh, the watercourses. Uh, they would love to stop it, but equally, you can't imagine assume that every consumer is going to be on top of all of these kind of complex issues. You kind of need to hope and trust that people like vets can be able to actually uh, play that leadership role in helping solve some of these. And this is a message I'm giving to every sector, and I'm giving it to my own sector. And uh, we all know none of us are perfect. These are all kind of things for us to struggle with. But if all of us across society in each of our specialist areas are playing this role, we might just have a chance. In 2019, Oxford Dictionary chose climate emergency as the word of the year. But are people as aware as they need to be about how dire the situation is? I mean, the last 12 months should be a timely reminder for any of us how lightly we need to be treading on the planet and how much more respect we need to be exercising than we currently do. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, one of the stories of the appalling sort of COVID pandemic that I don't think has come across strongly enough so far is actually perhaps what the causes were of it in the first place. And indeed, uh, how it is a story of warnings that have been ignored. You know, it was over 20 years ago I first became aware uh, when the UN published its Millennium Ecosystem Assessment. Strangely enough, around the time of the millennium, mm -hmm. uh, they, they published that. And that's when I was first aware of this risk of increasing uh, frequency of pandemics uh, and zoonotic escapes. And uh, particularly if we kept fragmenting uh, wildlife habitats and allowing a trade in endangered species and wildlife. And uh, it was warned about then. And since then, of course, we've seen the emergence of Ebola, SARS, uh, Nipfer virus and others. And of course, most recently, COVID-19. And all of this was warned about, actually. Uh, all the warnings have been there stretching way back. And it said, you know, if we want to do something about this, you've got to stop fragmenting wildlife habitats and we've got to stop trading uh, wildlife parts. And those warnings were not heeded. And I think, you know, there's one uh, big lesson from the last year that, that science and technology in the form of vaccines uh, is just amazing what can be done then there and uh, to try and help treat uh, you know, the symptoms and the problems of a disease like this. But actually, if you want to stop the causes in the first place, we've got to stop these kind of diseases emerging quite so easily uh, from the wild environment. And because of that uh, mix up of humans and, and wildlife that has happened because of the, uh, the fragmentation, particular wildlife habitats, particularly in the tropics. And that, I think, gives us lessons also for things like climate change. You know, the warnings have been there for years. People have started to get it and we're starting to see a bit more action than we used to, although that's against a low bar. But I still don't think people understand just how serious it is. I mean, at the moment, um, commitments from governments for emission reduction still put us on path to around four degrees of warming which uh, take into account means that where I'm sitting now in Cambridge, which is currently an hour and a half drive from the sea, would mean is a coastal city. <laughs> or, sure. or, and that's millions of homes that have been lost in the meantime. And that's just looking at one aspect of it, let alone just how it becomes intolerable. Big parts of the globe become intolerable places for people to live as well. I don't think people have really got their head around just how serious this is at the moment, um, unless we take much faster 
bolder action on cutting emissions? It's a fascinating answer. And it's also interesting to hear you discuss the pandemic and how that effort, that scientific effort was put in to do something that would normally take five or six years to do to get all these vaccines through. It's interesting to me. I wonder how much we spent on the pandemic and how much is being spent on resolving these problems with the environment. And I guess it wouldn't do us any harm for them to see the same sense of urgency in governments around the world to this particular problem as with COVID-19. Yeah, that's exactly right on both of those points. So, you know, it's it's been estimated, figures have been put on how much it would cost to protect all biodiversity globally. And it's in the hundreds of billions. Uh, and that's a lot of money. But, you know, COVID alone has cost us trillions, trillions and trillions. So actually it would have been far cheaper and better for, of course, all kinds of other reasons if we'd just got on and spent the money on protecting biodiversity sooner rather than later and before this happened. Um, and similarly, you're absolutely right. I think, again, a big hope, uh, a big lesson, a positive lesson from the last year, because I always try and find the positive lessons, is that actually the last year has shown that humans are capable of amazing things when we put our minds to it. You know, we can actually build hospitals in the matter of weeks and months as opposed to years. We can develop and roll out and deliver vaccines in the period of a few months rather than decades as well. Absolutely astonishing. And we could do that in delivering the solutions to climate change if we put our mind to it. You know, I've had the whole of my career people telling me when we're talking about, say, moving on from fossil fuels, people say, oh, it can't be done. Or the development of electric vehicles, oh, it can't be done. Or it will take decades or whatever. And, uh, oh, we can't possibly do that by 2030. That's far too much effort. We could if we really wanted to, if we really put our mind to it. And that's what we're going to have to do. That's what we've got to do. We've got to start treating this much more like the emergency it is. And funny enough, if we do that, it also becomes an opportunity to change those things that we, we've always wanted to do. Take, for example, if we get rid of internal combustion engine vehicles uh, and move to maybe electric vehicles or other, other forms. But, you know, huge multiple benefits in that that go way beyond just uh, dealing with climate change. It's also getting rid of air pollution in our cities. It also means that you can fill up at home by plugging in rather than having to drive to a, mm -hmm. a, a filling station, uh, all of these kind of other benefits. So it's just funny how really society has almost got this inertia at the moment, stuck in the past and stuck with old technology rather than moving on to the next step of human progress, which, as I said, is learning to live fairly within environmental limits. Yeah, I was just reflecting on the fact, actually, that you discuss the benefits of these technologies. And from where I'm sat, we don't even know where these technologies are going to go and what opportunities they'll present for mankind, what job opportunities. It's not just, you know, we need to do this. We, we shouldn't just want to do it. We need to do it. We needed to find a vaccine. We did. We need to find a solution to climate change, to all the problems going on. Do you think we will? I think we will develop amazing solutions in response to these kind of problems like climate change. There's not just one. There's no just one silver bullet, of course. It's thousands and thousands of uh, solutions that we need here. And some of them will be technological solutions. Some of them will behavioral change. Some of them will be, you know, innovation, the form of new institutions, new laws, new approaches, social innovation, cultural innovation and change and all of these kind of things. It's that whole uh, uh, shift that I think will make such a big difference. But if we're clear, if we be, can be clear what the problem is and focused on the need to bring about that change, then humans have an amazing ability to do it. 
Um, it, unfortunately, there is sometimes technical inertia, cultural inertia, political inertia that holds us back. And those are the things we've got to overcome. I think it's if we can overcome that inertia of those, the uh, people telling us it can't be done, then actually we've got a chance. And all these things require leadership in one form or another. Could you explain some of your background in leadership and how this has helped shape your outlook? Yes. Well, I mean, it's fascinating, I think, that when you're trying to, you're in a leadership role in in charities and not-for-profits in particular, I think that, funny enough, poses really kind of sharp leadership questions and challenges. And the reason for that is is actually uh, the vast majority of people that work for you are highly motivated behind the mission and purpose as to why you're there. They feel very strongly um, about it and are driven by it, which is all good, but they know their own mind and how they want to go about delivering it. And so trying to pull people together to really focus behind a common goal uh, does require a real focus on leadership. And I think one of the things I've learned in my time is to recognize and understand the difference between leadership and management. And too often they are sort of uh, conflated, they're blurred. And in fact, sometimes you have leadership and management training, which doesn't kind of distinguish between the two. But I think they're fundamentally different. It's it's worth everyone being aware, uh, whether you're in a leadership mode or management mode. And I think, you know, everyone has to do management. Of course they do. But actually, leadership can come from anywhere it doesn't actually need formal authority to deliver leadership i mean i'll give you an example as one of the most uh, amazing examples of leadership i've seen the last few years or the world has seen the last few years came from a, a young swedish schoolgirl, of course Greta mm-hmm. Thunberg. Mm-hmm. she had no formal authority over anyone and yet she's ended up leading millions of uh, young people around the world to come together into a movement and to uh, demand climate action. And that's real leadership for you uh, when you can do it without the kind of formal authority. And it shows that in any organisation, leadership can come from anywhere. Um, And uh, those of us that then are in formal leadership positions, it really uh, falls on us to think through what are the qualities that cause people to be able to demonstrate leadership even when they don't have those leadership positions and how then can we make sure we're delivering that particularly if you're in a formal position. And obviously that requires quite a bit of trust in your team, which brings me on to my next question, which is in your experience, how important is team building success of a business or organization? Uh, it's absolutely crucially important. Um, I mean, the first thing is, is, you know, if you, if you are a leader, um, uh, well, you can't be a leader unless others follow. So mm-hmm. you can't be a leader but on your own, just as one. So actually, you have to be able to team build a team around you that will help deliver on that vision, form that vision and help deliver on that vision, and then cause others to follow that as well. So actually making sure you've got a team that is united behind that vision, that they feel ownership behind that vision and, uh, and, uh, and empowered and have an ability and are supported to deliver on that vision is absolutely crucial. I think the other thing to say is the more sort of senior a role you get in, obviously, the more time uh, time poor you are and the more important becomes ever than, than before to focus on doing what only you can do. So I always say, you know, for any chief executive, for example, you should only really spend time doing that, what something that only the chief exec can do. 
and almost everything else has to be delegated and shared through so that you know you're using your time appropriately um, and actually to do that in a way that's empowering people around you to be able to do that in their own way which might be different to how you would do it but you kind of have to be able to respect that and respect that difference and diversity and how how that's kind of delivered and i think these are critically important aspects about how leadership needs to exist in the in the 21st century and actually particularly how it empowers uh, particularly younger people in the workplace and it's the kind of leadership they want to see so that they can really get behind a mission and deliver in support of it in their own way but not following you know rigorous uh targets or objectives that have been set uh in in the very short term or just uh, orders if you end up in a sort of parent-child relationship in an organization ultimately that just means you're not getting the most out of your people but therein lies the challenge i guess if you have a clear vision if I want to open up a veterinary practice where I have zero emissions, I have a very clear mission, but it's the challenges in the delegating that, isn't it? And I guess that feeds back into the team building piece and everything else. It's getting the right people around you, trusting those people that you can delegate that. As you say, you're the CEO, you just get on with doing the things only a CEO can do and the rest of your organization works in a way. But I guess that can be the first hurdle for people to have to delegate. Well, yeah, you have to invest time early on in building alignment behind that it's not just telling people this is what we're going to do it's actually inspiring people that that's what we're going to do making people feel part of that vision uh, giving them ownership over it look seeing how they can contribute to it how they feel that they've shaped that and a part of that vision and then they will drive it forward and they see their own part a unique role in driving that forward that's all very important and that's the difference between you know following if you like and just uh, delivering on orders or instructions as you like. It's a huge difference. Mm-hmm. And, but it's, it's worth teasing those out and being quite conscious, in my experience, of, of the difference between the two. And you need both, actually. You, know, you still need to do a bit of management and things like that occasionally. And there will be hard rules, particularly around issues around you know, behaviour, safeguarding, all these kind of things. Uh, and that's where the management comes in, perhaps, rather than just the, the leadership side of things. But actually, to go to a different place, to really make a transformational change in an organization or in society, you know, that's where leadership uh, trumps over management every time. Well, I think that's a great place to leave it, Craig. Can I just flag up the fact you will be opening Congress on the 13th of May at 9am? I shall be uh, looking forward to that. And just thanks ever so much for the time, Craig. It's been a real pleasure. Not at all. Really looking forward to Congress. Me too. It's me again. I'd just like to thank our guest. I'd like to thank you guys for listening. And also to remind you, if you like what you heard, please leave a review on iTunes and tell all your friends about the podcast. And we'll see you next time for the next installment of First Opinions.